When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Animal Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Callie Smith, a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Dr. Christopher Preston about his book, Tenacious Beast, Wildlife Recoveries That Change How We Think About Animals. This book takes readers across the globe to look at endangered wildlife who are making a comeback. Their resurgence is good news, but are humans, especially those of us who were raised in a Eurocentric context, ready to shift our thinking in order to cohabitate with wildlife. From the return of wolves for the first time to the Netherlands in over a century, to the increasing population of humpback whales in Alaska's Glacier Bay, each chapter is full of hope, while also giving us questions to consider if we are to form a kinship and partnership with our non-human animal relatives. Christopher Preston, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Well, I'm so glad to welcome you back. I know you gave an interview, I think, in 2019 about one of your previous works. Um, So it's always good to have a a returning author. Um, And I wanted to begin thinking about the word tenacious. It's such an exciting word. When I told people I was reading a book called Tenacious Beasts, they're like, that's so cool. So how did you land on this this title? So I I love that word myself. it, it sort of moves me and it's a very personal word. I mean, you can imagine a friend being tenacious. Um, and you know, a lot of these animals, the ones I profile, they, they've stared extinction in the face. They've come right to the edge and then something happened. Maybe they got a lucky break. Maybe there was a change in law, but something happened and things turned around and they literally clawed their way back. Some of them. And tenacity seems to capture that. It sounds right. Uh, It's the right word to describe species that for a while were wobbling, but then things have turned in their favor and we watch them with excitement and joy as they find their place back on the earth. I love that. And the cover of the book is is also really beautiful. You have a buffalo, you have the spotted owl, um, and you know, especially thinking about just how majestic a buffalo is. And that's one of the excellent animals that you highlight in, in the book. Um, and then in your dedication, and I always love these, it's just a really intimate way um, to begin a text is looking at the dedication. You dedicate it to your father, who you said really um, gave you a love of animals. So what were those kind of foundational memories with your dad? So that, that's a good question. I grew up in England. Uh, southeast corner of England on the coast, the kind of White Cliffs area. And uh, it's a pretty place, but it's not a place full of wildlife. Um, 
But my dad would take my brother and I out on all of these adventures to see if we could trap or find or catch some of the critters that are out there. And so we would go out in the middle of the night with a net trying to catch rabbits. He would take us down to this bridge near where we live and we try and catch sea bass. We would go onto the rocks at a place called Bowling Gap and we put nets in the water that were baited with old uh, fish fish guts and fish skins and we try and catch shrimp and frogs. And I gotta say, we were probably the worst ever at catching these animals. We had almost zero success, but we would spend evenings and nights out there. We usually have a thermos of soup or something like that. And I remember the sense that even though we weren't doing very well, even though we weren't seeing much, catching much, I remember the sense that they're out there. These animals are out there. We might not see them, but we know they're out there somewhere. And I think that sense of there being a world outside of our human world, even when we don't see it, but that sense is something that my dad gave me. And I realized when I was writing this book, you know, every animal story I chased up, uh, every adventure I had, I could sort of hearken it back to those days of my childhood when I was being convinced by my dad that they're out there. I love that so much. And I think you even write in your book about how because it's an island, uh, Englanders are really removed from animals other than pets. And so I was wondering if you could maybe share a little bit more of that cultural difference since you've lived in both places. Yeah, for sure. You know, I came to the United States for graduate school and part of what attracted me here was the big landscapes and the big animals. And when I would go back to England, I would enjoy the countryside and go for walks. And I would keep my eyes open, but all I would see really was like a bunny rabbit or a fox or something like that. Some songbirds, plenty of insects. But I always felt like there was something missing, something, uh, something that, that the country used to have but didn't have any more. And what, what has happened over the years I've been away? I've been away three decades now. I've been living in the United States for three decades. Is that that very domesticated, very tame landscape of Europe has actually begun to change back a little bit. There's a, a big movement towards rewilding in Europe. And I visited it for the book, a number of sites where landscapes are being allowed to revert back to um, native processes, first and foremost, restoring ecological processes on the landscape and sometimes restoring animals. And one of the most exciting chapters in the book for me was going with my sister to visit a place where bison are being restored outside Canterbury in Kent. And, you know, Canterbury is a cathedral city. Uh, the countryside outside of Canterbury is kind of rolling. English countryside, wooded, lots of hedgerows, lots of sheep. It's got that very tame uh, English feel, but they're bringing back bison. They're bringing back 2,000 pound animals, which haven't been on that landscape for 30,000 years. And so something is happening in Europe. People are saying, I want to be around wildlife. I even want big animals on the landscape. In continental Europe, it's wolves. Uh, wolves are back in every country in continental Europe. And so people are saying that a world without animals 
is an impoverished world. And so it's been exciting for me having moved to the Western United States originally because it felt like here was where I could see wildlife and big animals. It's been exciting for me to turn back to Europe and see that passion uh, rebuilding and some of those animals recovering in Europe. And I like that you mentioned rewilding because that's another point you mentioned in the book as well is how um, European like conservation movements tend to focus on ecosystems, whereas um, I guess more U.S. Um, organizations maybe focus on iconic species. Is that is that calling to mind that that section that you wrote about? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I'm not sure whether that's an exaggeration on my part, but it was certainly my impression that when I spoke to Europeans who were interested in, in restoring things, they were often wanting to restore processes. And the the best example of that was when I sat down with a guy named Walter Helmut, who formerly was the head of Rewild in Europe. And we we're having coffee in the Netherlands. And, and I said, so what's the most exciting animal that you brought back onto the landscape? And really his face darkened. You know, there was like little brown. And, and he said, don't always ask about animals. Talk about processes. Talk about floods. Talk about erosion. Talk about sedimentation. But this is the Netherlands, right? So water is a big deal in the Netherlands. But it made me realize that restoration, yes, many of the sort of flagship species sometimes that are very important to restoration projects, but there's also underlying processes of ecosystem health, which are very important. In these woods where that those bison were getting restored in Kent, outside Canterbury, Sam, uh, Stan Smith, who walked me around the woods, he said, um, we're interested in abundance. You know, we're not just interested in bison. We're interested in what bison could do to recreate abundance in the woods. And that is floral abundance and faunal abundance. It's from the smallest insects right up to the bison. Mill. So I thought that was an interesting kind of perspective, perhaps a little different from what you might typically get in the US. Absolutely. I know, um, just thinking about the one really popular motto, save the bees, you know, everything's about the bees, but it's like, well, what does that really mean if we step up and think of it? And I love that chapter, um, you know, bison reappear in, in multiple places, but you were think you were talking about how their hooves, you know, help aerate the soil and their grazing patterns. Um, all of this contribute, like you say, to that abundance. And so it's really letting them come in and be the experts. Like these these animals have knowledge. They will bring this abundance if you let them be. And that was an excellent point that you you brought to the book. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I appreciate it. Um, a lot of the species that, that are the most important ones are these keystone species. And um, yes, you can look at them as charismatic and big and you know sometimes a little frightening maybe. Uh, but what's really going on is what's going on beneath their hooves or past their fangs, uh, what they're doing to the whole system. And that's where I think get really exciting. So speaking of other animals who are experts at what they do, um, I think this would be a great time to hear you read a little bit from the book. And this is the section, um, I think it's in the chapter, River Engineers, and you're looking at beavers and making their dams. And so this is a, a this is a particular section that really made me pause and I reread it because it's just written so beautifully. Um, and so I'd love to hear hear you read it if you if you may. Yeah, no, I'd be happy to do that. Just to set a little bit of context here, 
I'm on a site where a dam has just been removed. So this is the Milltown Dam on the Clarkport River, which is outside Missoula, Montana. And I'd gone to see the dam removal site, but I knew that at that site where all the concrete and the rebar and the rock and the stone, they'd all been pulled out over the last few months. But I knew that on that site, I was going to find some dams, just a different kind of dam. So I'll just read you that section here. I walked along the old railroad bed, past thick carpets of penstemon, flax, nodding onion, and woods road. A few hundred yards upstream, I turned towards the river and squelched and grasses soaked by high spring water. A can of pepper spray filled the back pocket of my jeans. Christudia had told me to watch out for bears and moose bedded down in the willow. The restored floodplain thronged with light. Dragonfly wing beats cracked the warm air. Deer and elk prints stippled the mud. The trill of red-winged blackbirds perched on gyrating bulrushes amplified the sense of abundance. I hopped across a seat and balanced my way over a damp log before finally finding what I was looking for. A scrappy barrier of mud and sticks three feet high stretched from one bank of a side channel to another. Picture-perfect beaver dam. Oh, thank you so much. I love that surprise. Um, what did you feel when you, can you take us to that moment and beyond the writing of like, did you do a little like, yay, or how did you express your joy in that moment? Well, it was really exciting. So I mentioned Custodia. That's Mike Custodia, who was the park superintendent there. And uh, I'd arranged to meet him by the restoration site. And then he pointed me in the right direction. He said, you know, you go up there, you take the left, you wander towards the river. And he said, you'll get your feet wet. Um, and so I, I went up there and I, I wasn't really sure exactly where to go, but I was just sort of squelching around, you know, poking around, hoping to come upon this beaver dam. What struck me actually when I saw this dam is how perfect it was. Um, you know, beaver dams can take all different kinds of shapes and they can be sort of muddy embankments and berms. Um, they can be sort of messes of sticks in, in sort of strange oval shapes. But this one, I don't know if it was a kind of a setup for me, but it was just perfect. It was, you know, maybe about 30 feet across. Uh, it was three or four feet high. It was beautifully made. It was just, obviously the beaver that had done this was a total expert. And it just felt like, well, look, if I wanted to put a beaver dam at the beginning of this chapter, this is the perfect dam. So it was kind of, it was almost too good to be true when I showed up there. I love that you had that experience and that we get to have it vicariously as readers uh, with the text. Um, while we're talking about beavers and dams, um, you you highlight how rivers and river engineering um, from us humans has mostly been pretty messy <laughs> throughout history, um, but that there have been some restoration efforts to use beaver engine, like how beavers build dams. Um, so it's the Beaver Dam Analog Project. Would you say a little bit more about that? I thought that was really fascinating. Yeah, sure. So. Um, just like a general point about the book, you can read it just for the good news about animals. And there's plenty of interesting, perhaps uplifting stories in there. But you can also read it looking for some kind of subtle change of attitude or some kind of shift in how we think about animals, which I think is a good uh, harbinger for, for the future. So this conversation about beavers and what beavers do 
is a nice, nice illustration actually of that shift in thinking. Um, beavers can teach us a lot about how to restore a creek. A creek. Um, I mean, we can go restore it with, you know, big earth moving equipment and we can go plant some willows and stuff like that. And I did that as part of this book as, as some of my research. But if you really want to know how to restore a creek, you've got to ask a beaver. And I went out in the forest with a PhD student who was studying how beaver dams work and what they do to a degraded ecosystem. And he's doing that by building what are called beaver dam analogs. So an analog meaning it's kind of as close to a beaver dam as, as we can make it and fake it. Um, and you put these beaver dam analogs in and they cause water to back up, they capture sediment, and they start the restoration process. And so I went out in the forest with somebody who's literally focusing their PhD on getting the science of uh, degraded habitat restoration with the help of dams, he's getting that science nailed down. And he actually said to me, he said, you know, I, I, I'm keen to preach the good word about beavers, but I want to know the science. I want to know the details of how this works. We've got to show how it works. So the beaver then becomes the teacher and we become the student or the apprentice. And so the change in attitude here is one where we sort of step off our pedestal uh, as the sort of high and mighty river engineers, and we apprentice ourselves to beavers. And we say, well, what, what would they do? What can we learn from beavers? And so the idea of a beaver as a teacher is one that I try and kind of filter out of this chapter by chapter's end. I think one of the scientists even has the saying, like, what would the beaver do? Or what would beavers do? Yeah, it's like a bumper sticker. Yeah, like, what, what would beavers do? Yeah. And I like that you're mentioning, you know, humility is a recurring um, idea that that comes throughout. And I feel like um, I, I see that especially in moments, right? Like learning from the expertise and the knowledge that animals have. And I also think it comes out in an interesting way in the text when you're thinking about relationship building and trust building between uh, restoration nonprofit groups and farmers or people who are working in more of the industry and agriculture. Um, is there any particular instances uh, that you'd like to kind of spotlight about the importance of that relationship building? And I was thinking maybe about the wolves or even the bears in Italy. Yeah, sure. So, you know, I can't pretend that wildlife restoration is always going to be an easy part. And there's certain animals that are definitely going to create hardship uh, for some demographics and for some people working in certain industries. And you know, the return of the wolf is obviously a case in point. Um, as a farmer or a rancher, it, it's quite likely that a wolf is going to have an economic cost to you in some fashion. And so figuring out how to mitigate some of that tension and to break down some of that hostility is a really important part of animal return. And in the Netherlands, I chatted to, to some people who kind of worked right at that intersection of trying to uh, sort of tamp down the hostility and to um, get people to sort of feel uh, what were the worries on each side of the debate here. And there was a uh, person named Natalie Soot in Germany 
and founded an organization called WikiWorld. And WikiWorld was made up of volunteers from the cities who would go out onto farmland before wolves arrived and would put in place the kinds of defenses that farmers and ranchers needed in order to have their animals secure from wolves. And so they would pound in fence posts and put up electric fences. Um, in some cases, some of these volunteers after wolves had arrived in the area would sleep out in the pastures uh, with the domestic animals in order to kind of let the wolves know there were people around. And this is really the, the social summit of restoration, not the ecological side, but the social side. Doing the work that puts the people in favor of the return of wildlife in the company of the people who might be a little bit suspicious of it. And what happened in almost all these cases is people got to know each other, got to understand the various kind of pressures and the various motivations and came out of it much more likely to work together and much more likely to try and find a solution. And, you know, I think that's an important lesson. It's very easy if you're living in a big city and you have to bear no economic costs of a wildlife recovery. It's a very easy thing to sort of sit there and say, well, we need these animals back. But really, you have to put some skin in the game. And, you know, that could be financially. Uh, it could be by uh, donating money to compensation schemes. It could be politically, making sure that the right legislation is in place so that no part of the population is unduly harmed economically by the return of wildlife species. Or it could just be by giving up your weekend to go out there and be on the land and help people who could use a few extra hours of work to make their lives easier. So that was sort of a, a lesson in, in the face of challenges that do occur with wildlife restoration. You've got to kind of dig in and address those challenges. I like that because, you know, throughout the book, there is this, this sense of hope. There is a, a sense of joy. Um, but also it is this great reminder, like you're saying, um, it takes putting skin in the game, showing up, getting out behind just, you know, meetings of people brainstorming and dreaming, but actually getting out there and, and providing the resources and being um, and building those relationships. So I, I love that the book highlighted those, uh, the importance of those efforts. Yeah. And sometimes you have to do things that might surprise you. And uh, the bears in Italy were interesting because in order to mitigate some of that tension, uh, you know, these bears were obviously going to be attracted to things like the uh, beehives that the beekeepers were keeping and the chicken sheds in the villages. And so in order to mitigate some of that tension, volunteers were going out pruning apple trees up in the hill. And these were old apple trees that used to be harvested by villagers, but they've since been abandoned. But by pruning those apple trees, you could make them bear fruit again, which kept the bears out of the villages. And that was what they really needed to do. They needed to mitigate the tension by keeping the bears out of the villages. And so they're pruning trees for bears. And, you know, that's kind of weird for a Montanan where I live here. And when, when bears are coming into town, we get the apples off the tree because we don't want them eating apples at all. But in the Apennines of Italy, they were actually encouraging apples to grow on apple trees. So there's no one rule that works for all places. There's a sort of feeling your way through the problem and try and find a solution that works best for everybody. I like that this is such a benefit of not just being, you know, limited to 
to the U.S., uh, you get to kind of, like you're saying, have those two instances of what's maybe working uh, for that particular particular community. Um, so one thing that I was really interested in was the the conservation of buffalo in Montana um, and elsewhere as well. But there was the story um, you highlight the Flathead Reservation and kind of the history of buffalo restoration in that area. And I, w- I thought it was really excellent that you brought in um, indigenous histories and the way that those communities have been working for restoration and conservation. Um, and so can you say a little bit more about the history of the buffalo on the Flathead Reservation? Yeah, absolutely. In, indigenous people show up in many places in, in this book. And the, the bison story is particularly instructive because often when the story of bison restoration is told, it goes straight to the American Bison Society, founded in 1905 um, by Roosevelt and Hornaday and, and others like that. But that's actually not where bison recovery started. Um, bison recovery started on the Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes Reservation, just north of us up here. Uh, in Missoula, uh, north of us in Missoula, um, where Atatitsa, who was a Pond Ore Indian, um, urged the tribe to bring some bison back from the Rocky Mountain front onto the reservation because he saw they were in trouble and he knew how much the bison had done for the tribe over the years. They would go out uh, onto the Rocky Mountain, what we call now the Rocky Mountain front, spend a couple of months there harvest some bison and, and bring back uh, some of the meat to the reservation. He knew what the bison had done for the tribe, and he wanted to do something back for the bison. And so eventually it was his son, Little Falconrobe, who brought six or so bison back onto um, the reservation just to the north here. And those bison multiplied and very quickly became a herd of about 800, which was the largest herd of bison in the U.S. And in fact, when Yellowstone bison fell to around a couple of dozen at the beginning of the 20th century, the Yellowstone herd was supplemented by bison that came from this herd uh, that uh, Atatitsa and Little Falcon Road had started uh, just north of us here. So the story of bison recovery, it, when that story is told, it should always begin with the tribes. Um, and, and I felt like there's a lot of mistelling of that history. Uh, and so, you know, in, in a little way here, I was just trying to, um, sort of add a, a few of the important details so that history isn't, isn't mistold. And I think also with bison, this idea, and it appears elsewhere as well, but purity, um, and genetic purity, um, and what counts as a, I guess, successful restoration, like, is this the you know, oldest genetic, you know, is it a relative to these older herds or is it been too um, interbred with cattle? So is there anything you'd like to say more about this idea of purity in the conversation? You outline it really brilliantly um, in that section. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, that bison chapter, like at, at one level, it's like good news, the bison is back. And, you know, the bison, the low point were probably at about 340 animals or so. And they're now up to about 500,000. And so, you know, this is good news. This is a conservation success story. Um, no doubt about that. But then you look a little deeper and some of the sort of deeper, more philosophical questions emerge. And with the case of the bison, the relevant question is, okay, 
if those bison somewhere along the line have bred with cattle, and so if the bison has cattle genes in it, do we have back the species that we wanted to have back? Uh, have we actually restored the bison or have we restored something that's uh, somehow inferior? It's like a little bit genetically compromised. And since I wrote the book, a journal article was published, this was about 10 months ago, suggesting that every single bison in North America has cattle genes in them. And so even the herds that were thought to be pure, so that includes the Yellowstone herd, and it includes the bison that were saved by the tribe up here. And then right, those ones have sort of been redistributed to various places, but you, know, you can kind of trace where various bison come from. But including the Yellowstone herd, including those bison to the north of us, um, this paper suggested that every single one of them has some cattle genes in them. And that's through an inadvertence or perhaps a deliberate uh, crossing of bison with cattle at some point in their history. And so there's a sort of a big philosophical question here. Does that matter? You know, do we, do we have a compromised animal down or should we be just completely fine with the fact that there's a few cattle genes in a bison and that's just the way it is, no problem. And I think in some ways, I think you write that it, it can be a helpful adaptation or it's really not bothering their lives at all. So if that's how they've adapted and that's how they are, then what's wrong? <laughs> so yeah, I, I mean, I did ask this question of um, Terry Dahl, who is a, a Blackfeet artist and a bison specialist. And she said it was quite powerful. She said to me, um, you know, this whole question about genetic purity, she says it pisses me off, to be honest. Because she said, we as a tribe face that question as well. Are you pure? And, um, you know, what's, what's your genetics? What's your blood? And she said, why does this matter? Why, why is this a problem with bison? And she said, I think this is a pretty common view amongst the tribe is that it's, it acts like a bison that looks like a bison. It can play a role in our culture that, that the bison plays. So why does this matter? And that was an interesting kind of an eye-opener for me. I mean, Terry said that it's a Western scientific obsession with genetic purity, and it's an obsession that gets imposed upon tribal people. Now, I should mention that I spoke to several um, wildlife specialists from the tribes, and, and this one view was not universally shared. Uh, in some cases, genetic purity mattered more. Uh, but in this particular case, it was a very eye-opening conversation about how some obsession, some wildlife obsessions come out of a Western scientific perspective and are perhaps not welcome outside of that perspective. And I was thinking also about what counts as wild, and I came across a term by reading your text of fence ecology. I did not know that was a, a thing. Um, and so the idea, I think, as I understand it, is that is a buffalo, even if it's a large expanse of land and a fence, considered a successful wildlife rehabilitation? So yeah, this is another huge philosophical question that lingers. <laughs> You're a philosopher. I should, we should tell listeners that you come from an environmental philosopher background. You are a philosopher. So this so, yeah, that is, that very is fitting. I, my day job is as an environmental philosopher. Um, I keep a lot of the environmental philosophy questions 
sort of secondary in the book, you know, so no one should crack the book thinking, oh gosh, it's going to be, going to be a lot of philosophy in here, but they do surface. Some of these questions do surface. So that one about, you know, what is wildlife purity, you know, it's kind of a philosophical question, but this thing you're asking now, Kelly, like what, what makes wildlife wild? Um, if they're behind a fence, do they count as wild? This is sort of an interesting question because doesn't wild mean that you're free to do what you want and you're free roaming, you're autonomous. Um, but if you're behind a fence, uh, this could be a problem. And it's certainly a problem with an animal that typically would migrate and would move with the seasons and would move uh, following the vegetation patterns. And so if you've got an animal like a bison that cannot move, is it losing some of its wildness? And this has actually been a problem for years in Yellowstone, because as soon as the bison come out of Yellowstone in the winter, down to the lower elevation, um, the state of Montana uh, sees this as a problem because of the potential, the perceived danger of disease being spread from those bison to cattle. So even the Yellowstone herd don't roam completely wild and and so i do dig into this question a little bit do you lose your wildness if you can't roam freely and should we worry about that and you know, given where we are in terms of the earth and global population and the imprint of humans can we avoid that i mean do we have to just accept that as being part of the fate of wildlife moving forward so i do try and kind of probe these issues i don't have any really strong answers to many of these questions, but I like to put those questions out there for debate. And I think people will find there's some pretty tough, tough philosophical problems buried in some of these issues. We're about to get to the owls, which I think is one that especially is a, a tough one. Um, but I was thinking about, you know, the bears and pruning apple trees, the Marsican bears in Italy, and this idea you write about of being overly a species becoming reliant on a um on a restoration is it called conservation reliance is that yeah, the conservation reliance. Yeah. and is that is the animal still considered wild i mean there's maybe not fences around the bear but they are dependent in some way in this human involvement how does that fit into this conversation of wildness yeah i mean this is this is where the conversation kind of comes you know right to an extreme it, if an animal uh simply cannot survive without human intervention, uh, is it then just sort of an artifact, kind of like a zoo-like animal? And uh, I mentioned in the book, the California condor, which is slowly recovering. I mean, you talk about a tenacious beast. Um, that condor was down to 23 individuals. There's now 300 or so living wild, but they have a problem. They're scavengers, and a lot of the meat they find to scavenge has lead shot in it because it's, it's an animal that's been shot and then left by a hunter. And there's enough lead in those carcasses to essentially be fatal for the California condors over time. So they have to be brought inside uh, periodically, and they have to have the lead removed from their blood. So it's a set of treatments that takes place over a couple of days. And you can do it quite effectively. You can re remove the lead from the blood of California condors quite effectively inside. And then you can let the condor back out onto the landscape. But that animal is conservation reliant. Um, is it still wildlife? Well, you know, it flies wild when it's out on the landscape. 
but it's tagged and it's, um, you know, the, the biologists know how long it's been since a particular condor has been in the treatment. And when it's time to get the treatment, they have to capture it and bring it inside. So is that animal still wild? If you were a purist about wildlife, you would say, well, no, if, if an animal depends on human, it's not a completely wild animal anymore, technically speaking. But, you know, we, we don't live in an ideal world anymore. We live in the human age, the Anthropocene, where the planet does show our effect. You know, everywhere on the planet shows the effects of human action. And so maybe one of the consequences of living in the Anthropocene is that it is going to be necessary for humans to take on responsibility, like taking the blood, uh, taking the lead out of the blood of California condors. And, you know, again, this is a tricky one. And I, I don't know exactly where I come out on it. Um, it's, it's a tricky one. And, and there's a lot of different cases where the kinds of things you have to do become more and more extreme. And this is the, um, in the chapter, I think it was called Parachuting Owl. Is that the, the name of the chapter? Great chapter titles, by the way. Uh, each one is really a treat. Um, you talk about someone whose job, I think their last name was Hunter, actually. Is that true? I think what a coincidence. Melissa, uh, so, yeah, Melissa Hunt was the name of the, the expert I spoke to that. And um, their job was to remove barred owls um, in order to help. The idea uh, was to help with the spotted owl population. Um, so, yeah. So can you say a little bit more about, in this case, we have the, the direct like killing of one to save another, um, which is its own large question. So this is, this is another version of conservation reliance, but it's the, the, perhaps the most horrendous version because you can't save one animal without, I mean, the euphemism will be suppressing another animal, but effectively it means killing another animal. And in this case, it is the barred owl, which is doing extremely well, but it's now in the Pacific Northwest where it didn't used to be. And it got there because humans helped it get there. Uh, now it's in the Pacific Northwest. It is giving the spotted owl a real tough link. Um, it's a much more aggressive owl. It reproduces more quickly. Uh, sometimes it will kill a spotted owl. Sometimes it will breed with a spotted owl which is another kind of philosophical issue uh, in that you lose the independence of the two species when they breed together. But essentially, the spotted owls are in trouble. You can give them a helping hand by killing barred owls. And I went out on the forest with Melissa Hunt, who had been in an experiment for five years to just see how effective it was to kill barred owls and to see if that helped spotted owls survive. And the results of the experiment were clear. It does help. And for some, as some people see it, the only way you're going to keep spotted owls alive is if you have an ongoing project to kill barred owls. And so this raises obviously a big ethical question as to how much uh, intervention is adequate and how much intervention is too much. Uh, I spoke to owl specialists who thought that killing the barred owls was appropriate and necessary. And I spoke to owl specialists who thought killing the barred owls was inappropriate. It was never going to work a long time and we should just let the chips fall where they may. 
and see what happens in, in those ecosystems. So it, it's a terrible dilemma, uh, but there are hardworking, very sincere people uh, on both sides of the dilemma trying to do what's right for a species. And, and that was one of the sort of terribly difficult pieces of this book when you come up against that kind of dilemma. And uh, Ms. Hunt, was she really respected these these barred owls, like she would have relationships with them. You write about that. Um, and so it's not just like anyone wants to go out there and do this, but what, what are the different methods of trying to address this problem? And other ones that you mentioned are, well, the spotted owls are, they more can canopy dwellers, so they might inhabit the upper levels of a forest. So if we can provide more, you know, biodiversity in our forest, maybe that'll work. But of course that is such an extensive years and years and years long project. Um, so what decisions can you make when the options are so vastly different in terms of time? Yeah, and that problem comes up frequently. Like there might be an ideal solution, you know, maybe with the owls as a habitat type of solution or maybe not. Um, in, in salmon restoration uh, topics and discussions, uh, maybe an ideal solution, if you can take out a dam and restore a river, an ideal solution is to let salmon naturally refine the river. But there isn't always time to let that happen. And there's a debate about whether you should stock hatchery fish in restored rivers. Not ideal. You know, a hatchery fish doesn't have the genetic strength that a wild fish has. But in, in a river system that might be under stress, with a wild population that may be hovering uh, really low, it's a, a debate about whether you should step in with a hatchery population, at least as an intermediate step, until the wild population can start recolonizing by itself. And so that came up in the chapters about river restorations as well. Very, very tricky debates. And, you know, as a philosopher, you want to have one principle that you can apply and say, this is what we need to do, but I kept finding myself getting stymied by these, you know, terribly complicated situations where there wasn't a single principle and it was more like a case by case, species by species kind of debate. And so I, I want to keep talking for many more hours, uh, but I do want to be respectful of your time and you've been really generous. Um, so I guess as we, we begin to wrap up, is there anything you end the book with um, creativity and courage? And so I'm really curious about in what ways are you, you know, pursuing those things currently in your projects or what are, what are things that are really interesting to you now? What's next? Oh, wow. Um, creativity and courage. So I guess let, let me sort of give you a little bit of background as to why that's the, the title of the last chapter here. Um, I, I wanted to write this book to sort of share some good news. You know, I wanted to help kind of lift people up a little bit and say, you know, all is not lost. If we if we play the cars right, if we do the right thing, some of these animals can come back. You know, we are in a bleak, bleak time for biodiversity, but all is not lost. So I wanted to kind of create a little bit of hope. But I also wanted people to think differently. That's a key message here is we've got to look at animals differently now. We got, you know, we're in the 21st century. We can't look at animals with 19th century mindset. We've got to look at them with the mindsets that are informed by contemporary science, informed by contemporary values, that learn from the indigenous people who lived alongside these animals. We've got to change how we think about animals. And that takes creativity and courage. It's much easier to stay with 
old ideas rather than it is to develop new ideas. And I met several people working in conservation who said, we need some courage here. Like we need to be bold. We need to think differently about these animals. And so I ended the book with a little, with a little section about creativity and courage. And you know, one of the, the things that I got to thinking about towards the end of the book is, you know, we have huge challenges as well as biodiversity challenges. We have huge climate challenges. And it, there's several cases in the book where the biodiversity challenges and the climate challenges can overlap. And we can find that by restoring biodiversity, we can do good things for climate. And you know, one example is the restoration of whales in, in the ocean. You know, whales provide this fertilizing effect to the ocean. And this fertilizing can help capture carbon. Or the recovery of sea otters. Recovery of sea otters allows kelp forests to flourish. And those kelp forests can suck carbon out of the atmosphere. And so there's, there's places where the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis kind of come together in good way. So if we can start to have different attitudes and think about uh, how to creatively engage in partnerships with wildlife, uh, we might find ourselves doing well from a biodiversity perspective and doing well from a climate perspective. And so this is a long answer to your question, but where I'm going, where I'm sort of going with my mind at the moment is, you know, what other types of win-wins can we find where wildlife restoration and climate restoration go hand in hand um you know we can think of the climate problem as as being a problem involving finding good ways to live on this planet alongside wild creatures and there's in increasingly in the news that there's this sort of snowball uh rolling uh, past, which is building this story about, about wildlife recovery and climate recovery, different ways that animals can help sequester carbon. And I'm pretty excited to kind of dig into that a little bit because it, if you can solve two problems at once, why not do that? I think that's an exciting kind of possibility. So that's where I'm kind of poking my nose at the moment of future writing. No, I love that. And um, your acknowledgement section is really, it's so moving to read. I should, you know, we, we talked about some of the people you talk with, but it's such a um, a conversational and like full and it's it's so alive with all these people that you talked with. Um, and so it was just, I'm excited to see um, how this conversation develops in your in your next project, next book that I hope to be interviewing about in a few years. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you saying that about the acknowledgements. You know, I, I thought I was writing a book about wildlife, but I was really writing a book about people as well. Mm-hmm. And by the end of the book, I just realized what a what a large role some of these people that played and, and how much they moved me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people that I just really ended up admiring and liking for the work they do and for the dilemmas they take on and for the way they're trying to figure things out. And, you know, it was, a I say in that acknowledgement section that it was as much a human adventure as it was a wildlife adventure. And so I did, I, I rather indulged myself in the acknowledgement section and mentioned all of the people by name. I just want to give them a lot of thanks for, for what they gave me uh, in the writing of this book. That was an amazing, you know, the, the word abundance has come up and you really show that with your research. It is, it's abundant with all the voices that you bring together um, and that 
that is very creative and lovely. And, and I will be carrying many of these stories with me, um, having read the book. And I encourage our listeners, please, please check this out. Um, it is Tenacious Beast, Wildlife Recoveries That Change How We Think About Animals uh, by Chris- Christopher J. Preston out with MIT Press. So stunning read. Um, excellent conversation. I really appreciate your time today. Well, thanks very much. I've had a lot of fun. All right. Take a care. Thank <laughs> you.